I had a fantastic time with Sandrine today. I've been trying to schedule this one for a long time and it finally happened. We learned about her time as a Harvard Business School professor and what she teaches in her luxury marketing classes. Her journey through a remote working environment over the last year and a half with COVID, as well as what launching a brand in China is like and what you should be thinking about. If you're trying to learn from the best today, listen up. And if you enjoyed the episode, be a friend, tell a friend, like, and subscribe, and we'll do our best to keep bringing you the best people. Bye, everyone. Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Welcome to Earned, everybody. Today, we are going to learn from one of the top luxury marketing professors in the world, Sandrine Cremer. Did I, uh, I got that last name correct, right? Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to finally have you on. It's been so long in the making. Thank you so much, uh, Connor. I'm, uh, you know, very honored to be uh, invited in your in your show. Um, and as you know, it's always a pleasure to discuss with you. So thank you so much. Of course, it's. Um, I'm excited for today because I feel like I have a lot of questions. Hopefully, I can go through the same kind of uh, uh, coursework that your students go through over many many weeks in uh, in one hour. So hopefully, we can cover all of that. <laughs> that's, that's, let's try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for those that don't know Sandrine, she's currently the program director at the Harvard Business School, um, specifically focused on executive education. And then you also teach a graduate course in luxury marketing uh, there. Prior to that, you were at the International University of Monaco, um, most recently as the dean of the business school there. Uh, assuming that I read correctly, I believe you have six different degrees, including undergrad in mathematics master's in management, international marketing, business administration, public administration and executive leadership or educational leadership. You have a PhD, um, as well as you've spent a lot of time studying China, which I'm excited to ask some questions about there, as well as written a few Harvard business case studies, although none about tribe yet, which uh, eventually there will be a time. But um, yeah, that's uh, it's a really impressive track record. Congrats on, on what you've accomplished. Wow, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird when you read it all out at one time, right? Yeah, it's yeah, embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to cover a variety of topics today, right? Case studies, education, luxury marketing, China. Um, but one of the topics that I wanted to cover, so you know, obviously we've transitioned to a fully remote workforce as a company. So, And I've, I've started to see some of the effects there. And I think there's a lot of t people that are spending time studying that. Um, and the perspective that you have, obviously, is on the education side. Now, it's a different type of education, right? This isn't, uh, you know, grammar school. But at the same time, you know, you guys did, in a um, very unexpected and sudden way, have to change the way that you teach. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, there's been the resurgence of the Delta variant more recently. I'd love to hear about the last 18 months, what you've learned during that process, what the plan is moving forward. Um, and then maybe what was surprising about that, right? As you, as you went through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So I have to start a little bit earlier than that because before the pandemic, I, I decided to uh, start teaching uh, online because, um, I could see that, you know, online teaching was becoming more and more important and prominent. And to me, it was kind of the way to, to go. So I kind of challenged myself and, um, you know, sign up to uh, to teach my luxury marketing course online at uh, Harvard Extension School. And um, little did I know that, you know, that investment would become, you know, uh, so important because just a few months later, actually, you know, COVID broke up. So um, I think I come from this place where I kind of recognized that uh, online learning was uh, becoming very important. And I uh, and what I realized giving this first course was that actually um, online learning and teaching work, that it, it worked, it's, it's working very well, actually. And this was, you know, the first takeaway for, for me. I, I enrolled, I, I signed up for that course. I was kind of a little bit skeptical, especially, you know, being at HBS where, you know, we are so proud of our residential program and we are really offer modern education. It's even, you know, a real experience uh, on campus, both for our full-time MBAs, but also for executive uh, participants. So I was coming, you know, from the uh, opposite of the spectrum, so to speak. 
Um, but then, you know, we had to uh, to realize that, um, I mean, we had to adapt with, uh, with COVID and uh, at HBS, it was kind of a huge and they were a huge effort to uh, train our, our faculty. Um, acquire the technology and the, 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 the tools, you know, to support online uh, online teaching. Um, and I think we really did um, outstanding. I mean, our faculty and, and staff did an amazing job because uh, we were we were really able to uh, to pivot um, very fast and very successfully. Um, so um, I would say. That's you know, online learning is here to stay now, and uh, mm -hmm. I think it can complement you know as presidential education as well. Um, so it's very interesting where we are going to to go you know in the future with those hybrid models, with maybe live sessions that are supplemented by uh, acronyms, uh, you know, content, um, self-paced learning. Um, so it's going to be. Um, easier, you know, to um, individualized and pluralized education. And uh, what I mean is like we can cater to the needs, to the individual needs of um, individual learners, um, adapt to their um, teaching learning style and, um, yeah, provide, you know, more, more support and um, hopefully um, keep, keep them longer in the system and have them... Um, you know, graduate or complete, you know, their their requirements because, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, issues, especially with uh, with undergrad, like so many people are not, you know, completing their degrees and things like this. So I think the technology and uh, mixing, you know, all the tools and the different teaching methods will be very valuable moving forward. I love that idea of the individualized learning model, right? Because I think that if you weren't forced into this, it would have taken much, much longer to develop those tools and those competencies and that um, comfort in actually being able to teach in a different way. Um, in the same way that, you know, I was very much a, like, I thought being in the office was super, super critical. And I still think that there's a lot of collaboration and, um, there are a lot of things to be gained by being in person, but at the same time, I've realized that, you know, you can be incredibly productive um, from home or remotely and that the technology is there to allow us to do it. So um, that makes sense to talk, talk about this education topic a little bit more. Obviously you seem to be kind of a lover of learning, right? Um, you've certainly spent more time in school than I have. So, uh, so tell me, what is it about kind of the classroom that, that uh, draws you in so much? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I had, doesn't feel like I have any merit, you know. I always love school. Um, yeah. I, I think I am a very curious person, so um, I um, I love to learn. I, I read a lot, and uh, I read about a variety of uh, of topics, you know. So, for instance, I'm a foodie, so um, I, um, I, I read about food, about restaurants, but also um, agribusiness you know, companies, innovation in that field, but then it leads me to nutrition and health and wellness. So you know, then I, I read about education because I'm an educator. So the strategies of the business schools globally and where is our industry going and um, the latest research in uh, learning and teaching, you know, all those type of, uh, of, um, of things. Um, and then I'm also studying luxury brand across many different sectors. So, um, you know, you have the usual suspect like um, fashion or jewelry or, you know, leather goods. But I also study yachts and hotels and private jets and um, even high-end medical services and discover mm. this amazing company that is called... Uh, private medical so you know i um i really enjoyed learning so i think when i was young i uh, i studied you know first in a bachelor degree then in a master then a few years later i did my mba and then i did my phd it was kind of you know something natural today i um I um I don't I attend courses at HBS I attend my my programs um 
And uh, I also teach or I follow a number of, you know, webinars, online courses, and, and I read a lot. So um, <laughs> and learn, I mean, this is what is, I think, fascinating today. And especially with, you know, the new technology and learning is taking new shapes, new forms. And, and this is also, I think, something that will uh, reshape uh, education and higher head in, uh, in the future. Like people might not, you know, stay in those long degrees, but become more um, lifelong learner and accumulate uh -huh. credentials, accumulate short courses. I mean, you name it. But um, yeah, there are just different ways now to, um, to, to learn. And as I said, it's like you can find the best way for you. So that could be reading or that could be listening or that could be just doing. And as a professor, then you have this new flexibility to really pluralize the way you teach with, you know, the live session, but also the asynchronous session, the recorded session and new types of activities that are now um, available with, uh, with technology. Yeah, I mean, there are a variety of technology companies that are, you know, attempting to fill in those gaps, right, or provide alternative ways of learning. Um, Particularly, it seems like undergraduate is a, an area that people are really trying to um, uh, service, right, As or create alternatives for. I saw a statistic recently. It was actually quite surprising, but there's been, you know, overall a decline in undergraduate, you know, um, people going into undergraduate degrees, but where it's pronounced is in men for some reason. Um, so now it's fully, I think, I believe it's 60, 40 or over 60, 40 in terms of uh, female male split for undergraduate degrees. Um, that's interesting. I'm curious to see where it goes over time. Um, at the same time, and I'm kind of getting on a, a, a tangent here, but I think that the value of a top tier education, at least from an external signaling perspective, is perhaps stronger than it's ever been, right? So you didn't used to walk around and say, hey, I went to Harvard and have that on your chest, right? Like that wasn't a thing. But now because of LinkedIn, right, that's there all the time. And that's another part of your, your professional branding. Um, so it's interesting. It's just, there's a lot of flux in the category, it feels like, category being education. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting uh, observation, Connor. I, um, I personally believe that we, uh, we are living in a branded world. You know, the, mm -hmm. I mean, we see that, you no, know, those brands are becoming more and more important. They create, you know, those universe ecosystem and uh, people trust brands and they develop, you know, deep relationship with, uh, with their favorite brands. And this is something that we will see in education, in higher ed, meaning mm -hmm. that moving forward, the value of the brands, the power of those educational brands is going to be even more important. And I would say technology and online is accelerating that because um, if you are a student anywhere on the planet and uh, you want to study any topic yep. and you want to study it online, then you have a diversity of provider that is really huge. Uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. in, you have you know, uh, other universities and uh, MOOCs and... But then if you if you really want, let's say, to invest and maybe learn from the best and you have a class that is available from Harvard or MIT or Stanford or whatever, you know, and if those schools are providing this quality, because this is what we stand for, no? like the quality of the education that we, we provide, the best research, the best, the best faculty, then why would you do, what would you go to an alternative provider? Yeah. You, you see what I mean? So mm -hmm. to me, it's possible that, you know, in the, in the future, those Ivy League schools will have, will have millions of students globally. Yeah, absolutely. Like why, if you can, again, if like, because the, the biggest problem used to be access, right? So if I wanted to see the best professor in the world, there's only so many seats in the room, right? And there's only so many people that can relocate. Let's actually talk about local education for a minute, because I think you have some background there as well, right? 
And I remember that you said at one time, one of your proudest moments was being able to kind of help revive or maybe be a part of the revival story of a school. Can you tell me about that? And then what, uh, how is it doing today? Like how, how do you see that changing for them over time? Like how are they going to be impacted? I guess we talked about it a little bit. Yeah, no, of course. So um, you're right. I mean, everything that happened to me, I think in my career yeah. happened a little bit by chance, you know. And I got uh, I got introduced to this um, this college uh, that was uh, based in Monaco. It was an American college, American type of education, you know, based in Monaco. And uh, this school was really uh, struggling and oh, wow. basically went bankrupt. Um, and um, my um, my husband and I, my husband was in education. I mean, yeah, was in education as well. And with a group of friends and partners, I mean, we decided to uh, to take over the, the, the school and try to revive it. So we uh, rebranded it and really um, rebuilt it from uh, from the ground up. And yeah, that was very rewarding. I I really had a lot of fun doing that. Um, and uh, you know, w when you develop, I mean, you know that you are an entrepreneur. Um, you start a, a business, and it's uh, it's really your your baby. And uh, you know, you you think about it all the time. And um, so um, that was very rewarding, re rewarding because we um we got um, very good result very very fast, like being ranked as you know the top top MBAs and programs in, in Europe. Um, we had amazing students that um, also we were able to place at um, in great corporations uh, around the, the world. The MBA, some years we had 100% placement wow. rate at graduation. So that was very fulfilling, you know, and to see the, the, the success of, uh, of our students. So, yeah, I'm very proud of, uh, of that. And... Um, yeah, very nostalgic of the of those years as a what, as well. <laughs> what were the steps you took? So you came in, it's bankrupt, right? What were the big changes that you made that took it from there to being one of the top MBA programs in Europe? And you know, I would assume not bankrupt, right? So what were what were some of the steps that you got to get it? Because it's it sounds like it was both a reputational um, you know resurgence as well as even a financial resurgence as well. Yeah, so you know, we uh, I think we we had a vision, and um, we really wanted um, to create. I mean, to create um, an institution um, with, um, let's say, that was uh, that was demanding and that was providing you know high quality uh, of education. That was very important to to us. Something that uh, was good and something that we could be proud of. And we um, we had this uh, this idea of creating a kind of a boutique university, a kind of um, so very small class size, um, very high ratio of um, faculty uh, faculty to students. So we had one faculty for 10, 10 students uh, individually, oh. and um, so that was very important to uh, to to us. Um, so we kind of created uh, this uh, this environment, very nurturing. Um, so we had the systems in place and the people and the resources, the services in place to uh, to, to support uh, our uh, our students. Most of them were coming from abroad. We only had uh, five percent of um, local students. So it means that the school was home to them, really, like mm -hmm. you know. Um, they they were living and developing friendships and so um, we had this uh, this vision for something that was very international very uh, nurturing um as i said individual attention really trying to help uh, each person to succeed and uh, in their own way recognizing that not everybody is the same and that you don't necessarily need to be a math genius you know to succeed in life or and you know people have different talents and everything um and but still you know having very good um, programs and um having some um, very strong requirement academic requirements so that that was important and then you know if um 
you train your st student well, then um, you know they should perform well once they are in the market. And um, I think we are. Uh, we were um, really trying to develop those soft skills. I mean, obviously the hard skill, the education was there, but um, I think what we also try to to teach our uh, our students were those very important, you know, soft skills, EQ, and because they live with um, students from all over the world and also faculty, we from all over the world. We have professors from twenty different nationalities, and we have been students from 80 plus nationalities so you have you know to um, adapt and adjust and be more open-minded and listen and question you know your own belief your own behaviors and at the end of the process I think you know people are probably better individuals better citizens better team workers uh, better listeners um, so th this is why we are uh, we could place our students at uh, in top job, top corporations. I mean, they really like them and would come back for for more years after years. And this is how, yeah, we got those very high placement rates. Um, so, yeah, that was really rewarding. And as you mentioned, you know, undergraduate education. So we had both uh, undergrad and grad. But you see those students coming when they are eighteen and still like teenagers or and uh, over the four years um, of uh, undergrad studies they really change and transform and become you know adults young professionals and um, that was kind of mind-blowing so um, very rewarding to see them now very successful people many are entrepreneurs um, and with families good people it's it's really nice yeah, that's a, uh, I mean, from 18 to call it 22 is a hugely transformative age. And then particularly the first 10 years after that as well. Right. So um, I'm surprised that uh, none of them have been able to talk you into uh, some entrepreneurial venture that they're thinking about. <laughs> have any, has anybody tried to pitch you on that yet? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's a question that um People ask me this question a lot. That's very interesting. Huh. So, um, yeah, you know, sometimes I think about it, but um, actually I, I'm an educator at heart and, um, you know, I know what are my values and um, what I like and what motivates me. And, you know, when I receive an email from... Um, my former students and they tell me i mean recently one of my, my students emailed me because he had created school himself and he said you know i was so inspired by what uh, what you did in monaco that uh, i had this in mind and and look now i'm creating my own school and wow you know that's that's really um i mean i'm very happy about that that's very humbling and but very i don't know it feels like you know um, I'm doing something right, so um, I want to continue in um, in that direction. And if I were to become an entrepreneur again, which is always kind of you know an intriguing idea, um, I would probably work in in education as well because this is really my passion. I mean, I love luxury brands. I study them, and uh, it's kind. Of <laughs> and you know what we did in Monaco actually is really at the crossroad between education and higher head because um, it was really like a luxury brand for higher education. Really, this kind of haute couture, uh, you know, the haute couture analogy would uh, would fit very well. Uh, yeah. With what we uh, we tried to uh, we, to do uh, at that time. That was, I mean, as you described it, without obviously having been there, you know, the one to 10 ratio, right? Having this international appeal, obviously Monaco has incredible branding just as a city, right? So um, it felt to me like, oh, this must've been like a luxury experience, right? Exactly. And um, so talk to me, I'd actually be curious to get your definition. I've got a bunch of questions because I want to talk about your the Harvard Business Case Studies and others, but um, I remember hearing Bernard Arnault describe luxury, right? What he considered luxury to be. I'd be curious what your definition is. Like, what is your definition of luxury? <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know, nobody agrees on the definition of luxury. <laughs> Super hard question, you know? 
it is. And especially today, I think, you know, it seems like everything is luxury. And uh, because everything is luxury, nothing is really, really luxury anymore. Uh, yeah. You see the luxury brand going downstream, like, you know, to um, scale and... Um, and kind of, I think, moving a little bit away from a pure uh, luxury model. And you see the premium brands and, you know, streetwear and um, fashion brands trying to move up. And, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, let's say, um, use the luxury playbook to uh, premiumize their offering and, uh, y- y- you know, build the brand equity. So, yeah, so, you know, this is the the topic of my class like what is luxury <laughs> and uh and and once again it's it's very um it's very difficult so i would say you know there, there are a few um let's say characteristics of luxury brands that you know everybody kind of recognize like the quality the excellence the craftsmanship um higher higher service higher design you have exclusivity you have a very high price points you have elements of scarcity, of heritage, you know, all those things. So let's say those are a little bit the, the, the minimum because you could, you know, check uh, those uh, those boxes and still not be a, a luxury brand because actually the luxury status, so to speak, is given to you by the perception of, uh, of consumers. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not like you... Um, I mean, I know many brands do that today, but it's they say, well, we are a luxury brand, but that doesn't mean that they are a luxury brand, really. <laughs> I think that you can decide for, for, for yourself. Um, so the, the so there are, let's say, the, the, those elements, but then, um, you know, luxury means different things for different people because uh, it's um, depending on the context, depending on your culture, depending on where you are in the... You know, in terms of so, um, social class or things like this, luxury is going to mean something totally different. Uh, yeah. So that's why it's uh, it's something that is uh, that is very uh, very difficult. But what we can recognize is like there are, I mean, in any type of sector, probably uh, there are there is a luxury player, a pure luxury player that is kind of implementing a pure luxury strategy. Um, and uh, I use those examples with my students to kind of tell them, okay, so this is the top of the pyramid. This is kind of, you know, the genuine luxury playbook. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of easy to say, well, this brand belongs to this category. And then the others, or, you know, we can discuss and uh, <laughs> the the frontiers, the boundaries, um, the boundaries are very, uh, are very blurred. Um, so, and, and once again, there are also, you know, huge cultural differences. So the first thing is like, um, I think people typically underestimate how different a luxury strategy is. So that, that's the the first thing. And this is what I try to teach my my students, like, you know, fighting the stereotypes and also uh, showing them that, um, it's different. Um, and then um, there are huge cultural differences that still exist and maybe that are going to be uh, even more important, you know, in the future. We were, we were all thinking a few years ago that there was this kind of global luxury consumer that was the same across, you know, um, uh, across geographies. Um, but I, I, I just did a, a survey with... Um, with colleagues of mine and um, we kind of found out that those cultural differences are still there very much alive and um, so once again luxury is going to be um, appealing for different reasons for different customers mm-hmm. like you know in china it's more elitism in um in uh, in france it will be more about heritage um mm-hmm. in the u.s you know people will be probably looking more at you know exclusivity or you know, things like this. So you have to communicate yeah. differently. You have to emphasize, you know, different attributes in your value proposition, the benefits that you are providing your customer. 
Yeah, it certainly will. I mean, you have to imagine it would vary by by uh, by culture, right? Because so much for me, so much of luxury is defined by like I can, like you said, exclusivity. I can have something that someone else doesn't have, right? Whether that's via scarcity or price point or distribution or whatever it is, right? And so um, I remember having a discussion with somebody. They're like, we don't, because <laughs> we talk about it a lot in the context of influencers, right? Which is like. And I think historically, um, the, the, the mindset has changed, but call it five years ago, 10 years ago, um, you know, a lot of the luxury brands said, Hey, I know this is really important, but like, I don't want that person to be talking about me. Right. And, um, because those aren't my customers, right. The, the people that listen to them are not buying my products. And I was like, well, what makes you think like, why do people want to buy those products? They want to buy them because I can buy them and they cannot. Right. And so creating demand amongst consumers that cannot get access to your products is actually, I think, fairly critical. Right. Um, to success. It's not just about, OK, I only want to reach the people that can afford me or can access me or can whatever. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to take your course now. <laughs> yeah. And actually think about it more deeply. So I'm not sure that you create demand, you know, you create aspiration. Which okay. which yeah. is something different because um y you know so another thing that I teach in my class is like um we are talking about those stereotypes and I'm I'm going to come back to just what you said, try to, to respond to yeah, 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 yeah. this comment. But um you know, a lot of people see luxury as um conspicuous consumption. Basically, okay. like, you know, the big logo, it has to be in your face. You know, you have to recognize it. You have to see it because basically, the, once again, the, the stereotype is like people buy luxury to show off. Yeah. And yep. but this is a very reductive, you know, perception of uh, of luxury. And I would uh, I would say it's just the tip of uh, of the iceberg. And there is a, mm -hmm. of what I call, you know, invisible uh, luxury consumption or stealth um, luxury um, that you know you don't see on purpose and you don't know about because you are not a core consumer because mm -hmm. to, to create demand people have to be willing let's say they they need to want want your your brand and your product but they also need to be able to pay for it they, yes you, you see what i mean so you have to to have both so if you know people cannot buy your products then you know there is no there is no interest no need you know to target them or to communicate about your brand to them because maybe they will never you know afford that and and i think this is uh, what you know some uh, invisible like the invisible uh, or very quiet um, those brands that use you know quite signals uh, so those invisible luxury brands, this is what they, they want to do. They don't want to target an audience that, you know, do not belong to their, uh, to their target market. They don't want to use mass marketing or, you know, invest, you know, um, a huge amount of money in, um, in mass marketing because, I mean, it defeats the, the purpose. So it's more like they communicate to a very narrow, narrow segment and uh, they are very focused and this is why you know word of mouth and things like that. private events you know they use those type of um, marketing activities to uh, to recruit clients so that you know they only target those ones that you know can pay and want you know those type of uh, of products so this is why you know i i think a lot about what i call the tyranny of social media <laughs> Mm. And uh, I think a lot of those, what I call, you know, vanity metrics, like, oh, look how many follower, uh, followers I have, or look, you know, all those people, you know, talking about my bandana. For some luxury brands, you know, I cannot help thinking that some of those people may never um, be, you know, real luxury consumers in the, in the future but some of them are very vocal about the brand and you know they they love the brand and then you know they could um they react sometimes to what the brand is doing and they say well you shouldn't be doing that or you shouldn't say that on this on that and you know that could backlash a little bit so um, 
I think this is a this is an idea that is intriguing to me. Why and um, I I think that in the future probably some brand will step back, you know, and um, and try to be a little bit more discreet or you know do things that are more invisible instead of you know and with all those problems of inequality and things like this and also mm-hmm. controversies um there might be a there might be an interest i, I don't know it's just uh you know yeah no absolutely um that's interesting because you 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 mentioned that like yeah from your from some perspective uh, and for mass brands you know i think that makes sense like you know being visible and trying to recruit as many people as possible and that makes sense for a luxury strategy to a certain point maybe but i think at some point maybe you reach you know um um yeah maybe it becomes unproductive i don't know just my fault yeah no it's a good it's a real question right I and i think that that in the we- <laughs> we've definitely had the uh, luxury. We've definitely had the opportunity, right? So um, I think we work now with five of the 10 largest luxury brands in the world, work very extensively LVMH caring on down the list. And the, the there's two things that I think about, right? I do think desirability matters, right? And perceived desirability, you know, other people desire this, right? And I can have it. I do think that matters. Um, I, and I think it's pretty significant, but I think the other thing that's really important and where we did see brands tend to kind of stick their heads in the sand historically, um, is it's not necessarily about targeting or promotion, right? As much as it is about really for me, almost clienteling, right? So what would happen is you would have somebody like a Jeffree Star who has pink hair, tattoos, drives a pink Lamborghini, right? And then saying like, oh, I don't want Jeffrey to be the face of my brand. Um, You say, well, the reality is that he is, whether you want him to or not, right? He has tens of millions of fans. He is the number one influencer for Chanel, the number one influencer for Dior, the number one influencer for Gucci. And he also happens to be the largest customer for Gucci by revenue globally, right? And so for him, and if you actually look at the majority of the people that are in this ecosystem, they're not somebody that you would choose to be the face of your upcoming campaign, um, but they're often, you know, consumers, sometimes very large consumers. And I think the people that follow them are following them because they're inherently very interested in luxury products, luxury branding. And so it's less about saying like, hey, I want to go out and target the social media personality and more about the fact that, you know, Gucci will have around 13,000 influencers that will create close to 300,000 pieces of content about them each year, just in the US. Um, And and 95 plus percent of that is people just talking about Gucci because they love Gucci and because they're into the products and more than likely because they're consumers of that products. And I think there's frankly historically been a disconnect between what luxury brands want their customers to be and who the luxury brands customers actually are, right? I think there's a big disconnect between like, you know, and particularly between branding and actual end customer profile. Um, but yeah, it is definitely, it is a, it will be interesting to see how it evolves over time, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think you are, I mean, you know, what you do is super important. I mean, as you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not about what, you know, those brands want or, you know, as you say, the demographic or whatever, it's like with social media, I mean, the influencers or even, you know, consumers are taking the power. So it's like, yeah. You cannot control or anything, and uh, and I think in that in that way, you know, brands have have done you know the the good thing about like trying to collaborate with uh, with those people, and uh, instead of uh, antagonizing and uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and you know uh, just not uh, looking at it. Um, so so no on on that thing, I, I on that you know aspect, I totally agree with you, and uh, what, what you do is super important, and I I can. And it's a no-brainer that uh, those brands should be working with, with, with your organization and especially with, uh, you know, the trends of the democratization of luxury and the massification of luxury. Those brands, uh, you know, we are coming from a system where they had only a few stores and they were accessible just to a few customers globally to... Um, 
a situation now where, you know, anybody can have access, anybody can see them. They have hundreds of stores everywhere on the planet. So it's not a problem of accessibility anymore. Um, so just by the sheer scale of those business, and I think this is probably one of the uh, big shift in, in luxury recently. I think luxury brands have understood and have found a way to be super big while re retaining, you know, their prestige or their, des their desirability and, and things like this. So um, this is kind of, I think, uh, this has been a revelation, I think, for them because they were on a different model. And just in parenthesis, this is why, you know, Harvard, MIT, all those schools, you know, um, I think in the future will be able to have millions of students while keeping, you know, their prestige and aura and everything. Um, yeah. You see it, you know, in other, in other sectors. But what I am... Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with that. The, uh, the, uh, the only thing is like, you know, managing um managing this crowd on uh, on social media and man you know the problem is like the more you expose yourself to uh, so many different people you have to be ready and willing to manage you know the the, the backlash when uh, when yeah. when it when it happens and we we see that you know with social media we see that with some people we see that in china we see that you know in many uh, in many different ways where you know, consumer come back to the brand and say, we, we don't like you to do that. We don't want you to do that. You shouldn't be doing that. And, uh, and I think this is a threat, you know, um, to innovation and creativity because typically fashion brand and luxury brand have been a kind of the forefront no, of uh, innovation and even sometimes social innovation, like pushing the boundaries, no? Mm -hmm. um, and then suddenly you have to be very cautious about what you say, what you do, because there is always somebody that you could offend, you know. So, yeah, you understand what I mean? It's like yeah, totally. a double-edged uh, sword, you know. Yeah, so that was the exact word that I had, the double-edged sword. And I think it's, um, I think just, almost from an evolutionary perspective, right? We've never been exposed to so many opinions all at the same time, right? And people have a hard time conceptualizing like, oh, I've had these three negative comments about this particular initiative or whatever it is. But in the context of the number of consumers that you have as a brand, right? Those three comments are very, very small. Um, and then you, can, you kind of pair that with the um, the pace and and rapidity with with which something can become a big deal right like how fast it can accelerate into the kind of national attention um it's tough it's a tough it's a tough environment to navigate um so yeah it's uh <laughs> i'm glad i'm i'm glad i'm leading a b2b brand and not a b2c brand much much fewer opinions uh which is nice <laughs> Um, you mentioned China there, and I want to spend a little bit of time on that. Um, so I'm going to spend time both on China as well as, you know, you spend a lot of time researching, right? Whether it's the, you know, business case studies or your just own published research. Um, talk to me about, you know, what's, what's uh, if there was one research article that you've written recently that we should read, what would it be? Um, or one case study, what would it be? Um, and what would we, what would we learn from it? So you, you mean about China specifically? I threw a bunch of questions in there at the same time, which yeah. is feedback I've gotten that's bad. So I want to talk about China next, but before that, I want to talk about research. And this can be about any topic. Okay. So let's say any topic you've written about in the last five years. And I know you've got a book coming up eventually too that we might uh, end up reading, but what would be the, the one article you'd recommend everybody read or case well, study? Well, that's, uh, you know... I'm so the last uh, case study I um I published um with um my colleague Jill Avery from uh, HBS and um with two uh, colleagues from uh, from Europe Marie-Cécile Servelon in at EDEC and um and uh, Ranjit from um uh, London so we um 
we wrote a case about Supreme. And so, um, you know, the last one is always the more in, the most interesting because it's fresh in your mind. And then, so I'm going to tell you why I, 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 I'm, I write cases and maybe it will illustrate, you know, why I say this one. So typically, you know, at HBS, we use, uh, we use cases, the case method. So it means that, you know, professors do not teach or lecture. It's like um, they, uh, they teach through the case method, the case discussion. So the, um, what typically I think people do, and at least this is what I do, is like, okay, you want to teach a, a lesson, so you have the, the case is the pedag pedagogical tool. So when I created this uh, luxury marketing course, so I, I knew what I wanted to teach, like, you know, in the, those 15 sessions, uh, those 15 classes, I say, okay, those are the topics that I want to, uh, that I want to, to discuss. And then you try to find um, a company or brand, you know, um, that kind of illustrate that point. Um, so, for instance, I wrote a case on Stella McCartney because um, I wanted to uh, discuss sustainability um, because this is such a hot topic. And Stella at that time was, you know, the um, I think the um, yeah the brand to go to and uh, to explain, you know, what they were doing and it was really genuine. And so this is how I, I got to to choose that that case. Um, I wrote a case on um, cultural differences, and then I chose Mauboussin, which is a French uh, luxury um, jewelry brand. And I did that because at the time they were struggling in the US, so they were super successful in Europe, in Japan, in Middle East, uh, North Africa, but um, didn't go well in the US, and that was very intriguing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I reached out to the CEO and asked him, hey, I'm developing this class, I want to... Uh, I want to touch on, you know, those cultural differences issues. Would you be willing to um, uh, to write a case, uh, to let us write a case about your company so that we can teach an important lesson to our students? Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I have a good, I mean, I hope I have a good knowledge of the industry and, you know, what's going on with companies. So I typically have a topic in mind that I want to, uh, to teach. And then I try to find the best example, the best... Uh, um, a company that will exemplify best practices on that specific topic. So um, this is how I chose my, my cases so far. And now I'm thinking of developing a new course on what I call premiumization strategies and aspirational marketing. So how actually non-luxury brands are using the luxury playbook to premiumize their offering and to build brand equity. And uh, for that class that I'm developing, so I'm I have to develop new cases, obviously, because I'm getting yeah. new lessons. Uh, you know, Supreme was uh, kind of an interesting case, how, you know, their, their strategy is really uh, kind of inspired by, um, by luxury tactics. And um, so I tried, you know, to, to show that in the case. Um, um, and um, yeah, it's an interesting example because today, I mean, Supreme is a very cool brand, uh, very successful, and it's been in the you know in the media a lot. But people and a lot of I think new fashion brands, startups, you know, they use Supreme as a as a model, and they but they forget that you know Supreme is thirty years old, so it's uh, you know it takes a lot of time to get wasn't developed overnight, yeah get there and um, so those are also the lessons that we are uh, we try to teach in uh, in that case in terms of research um I, to go back to to go back to supreme i have a question for you um do you think that supreme will have the same level of prestige that it has today in 30 years Wow, that's a you know that's a tough question. It really depends on the strategy they have and how they execute the strategy. So um, I think what uh, something that is uh, often overlooked with uh, Supreme is like they really do quality stuff. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. products, you know, it's high quality, it's resistant, it's durable, and there is also obviously there is a very um, specific aesthetic and. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, I think they put a lot of thought, you know, uh, into uh, the, their design. And uh, 
there are multi levels of meanings and cultural references. So, uh, to somebody that is not knowledgeable about the about them, about their roots, and maybe you know they they don't see that, but um, their core consumers, you know, are really kind of uh, looking for it and try to decipher, you know, each collection and what it means and what are the references and. Uh, so just like you know the Easter eggs in um, <laughs> yeah in a Taylor Swift you know uh, market <laughs> but but this is working you know this is work yeah. this is amazing so yeah. um, I think you know if they stick to their model they stick to their identity to their brand DNA and especially if they stick to this quality uh, I think this is very important that. Um, Quality, as I as I said, you know, uh, in the in the clothes, but also in the design, in the meaning, in the substance, you know, uh, of uh, of the design, um, and you know, they stay true to their model. Yeah, there is. I mean, you know, today they only have eleven, no, thirteen stores, so it's like super small, and uh, so many people probably will want to buy, you know, Supreme uh, goods, and and today they can't. So, yeah. yeah, no, I think that they can uh, they can grow uh, very successfully, and I think they are in good hands. I hope you know, VF um, 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 Corp will um, will manage the the brand well, but it seems like it. So. You know, if they don't stray too far. <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing, you know, because I've spoken to a lot of current and former LVMH, you know, employees and team members. And the thing that I hear consistently that's quite interesting is, you know, they're thinking 50 years from now, right? Not, not um, you know, not two quarters from now or a quarter from now or next year. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if they can kind of maintain that that same, you know, what got them to where they are today over time. Yeah. Um, I don't know them well enough to comment more one way or the other, but I think quality of product, like you said, matters a lot in the long run. Um, yeah, they have to stay true to who they are, you know, the mm-hmm. DNA, what they do. Um, I think this is very important because this is why people trust brand, no? They choose brand yeah. for a set of criteria. Uh, and then you have to stick with, uh, to that DNA so that you uh, you know you keep your customer base and hopefully you know grow it and recruit more more people. But you have to be consistent, and this is you know why those luxury brands I think have survived for so many years. They are very consistent. They um, they have a very strong identity, um, strong brand DNA, and they just stick to it. And each time you see a private equity, you know, buying a luxury brand, they typically change the brand DNA to yeah. more appealing or more relevant or more modern or whatever. And typically it doesn't end well. Yeah. It works well in the short term, right? Um, <laughs> but it plays out in the long run. Um, I don't think we have to say names. I think a lot of people know who they are. But uh Okay. So I'm using way too much of your time. So I'm going to give you two options, okay, on China. So I'm going to give you two different questions. You choose which one you want to answer. So the first question, I've never done this before, so this will be fun. So the first question is, you know, given recent disruptions um, that have happened in the Chinese tech and consumer industry, right? So you're seeing, right, obviously, China's cracked down on a number of tech companies. There have been some backlashes in terms of consumer companies that um, speak out against China. I'd be curious if you've studied at all the broader impacts of that on kind of U.S. and European businesses and desirability to kind of work and do business in China. So that's one. That's one option. Um, the second option is kind of the reverse. So if you were a brand trying to launch and succeed in China, and let's assume that you're, you know, an established brand that's doing well in one of, you know, either the U.S. or Europe, we'll kind of limit to those geographies. Um, what would be your recommendations to that brand? So pick whichever question you want. Um, your your call. Okay. Well, they are a little bit linked together. But I guess you you cannot um, uh, you cannot ignore you know this this context. So um, you know China is the the, the first. Uh, luxury um, market globally so um, it's a market that you cannot ignore Mm -hmm. it's a market uh, you don't want to mess up with (laughs) 
No. Uh, it's a, that's a double-edged sword, for sure. Uh, <laughs> so China has always been a kind of a difficult market. No, the language yeah. complicated and, you know, culturally, ethnically, structurally, legally. I mean, it, it's tough. It's, it, it's really tough. Um, but then, you, you know, China has entered a new era. Um, they uh, they are going to dominate the world. Uh, they are going to be at the forefront of you know technology and uh, you know in many different sectors. I um, they are eager to earn you know respect from uh, from the world, and uh, they need their their revenge. So um, this is you know. In, I think in all domains, and we see it uh, even in luxury, where you know the government is uh, subsidizing uh, young entrepreneurs to launch, you know, their luxury brand, fashion brand, and everything. So for the longest time, we uh, we said, you know, China cannot innovate, and you, I don't know if you re- remember that time, but that was <laughs> they are only good at copying or whatever, which was so stupid. I mean, I've been to China uh, for. Um, well, 35 years now, and, uh, you know, those people were talking about it. I, th- I thought, like, well, they don't know what they are talking about. You know, I, I, 25 years ago, I was already kind of teaching my students when I was in Europe that, well, look out, they are going to create their luxury brand. It's not a matter of um, if, it's just when. And now, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many, uh, probably you, you read about Anta, you know. It's, yeah. Are the number number three uh, sports uh, good company, and um, they are going to conquer the world. You know, when you have the Nike, the Adidas, they are all manufactured in uh, in China. You know, you are it's going to be very difficult for just a matter of time, right? Oh, you shouldn't buy Anta, you know, because it's manufactured in China. <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, you um, I I think it's going to be very difficult for. Or European brands to 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 or Western brands. I mean the new ones, you know, to 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 to, um, to succeed in China or to enter China successfully because it's a very competitive market and as you know, it costs a lot of money. You know, to uh, to emerge from the clutter, there's so much content, so many brands, so many everything. It's like how do you yeah. emerge, how do you make yourself, you know, visible? And uh, it's not like the world is is you know missing on a new on a fashion brand or a cosmetic brand or anything so mm-hmm. it, it, it's at the same you know on one end it's easy to create a brand no you are you you create a, the, an e-commerce site in five minutes it doesn't cost anything yeah. and you can put content and you know all this kind of free uh, but the problem is like to emerge from uh, you know the, the notion of you know content and brand and and this is costing a lot of money. So in in one way the barriers to entries are very low, but actually succeeding is kind of more and more expensive. So now the luxury the I mean the Chinese customers they are very well mm-hmm. aware of their power. No number. One market and so they are mm-hmm. more demanding you know and they want brands to respect them and um, not even that but probably to uh, show genuine you know respect and probably also appreciation and and why not love it's like um so um they also you know there is this nationalistic sentiment that is there and this continue to grow um I so I, I I think it's gonna be difficult. It's um I see like yeah there are still opportunities for many brands because the market is so uh, is so big. Um but as I said, emerging and being so successful and growing a business in in China is gonna be um it's gonna be difficult and so you have to come up with, you know, an offering that you know is very different, very innovative, but also very relevant to the audience. So means that you need to know your customers and know you know the Chinese customers and what they want and how they think and be very careful because even if you have good intentions sometimes it could backlash I mean look at you know all those brands that have been caught in uh, you know 
controversies. Um, in luxury, I mean, the list is so long, so you really have to empower um, and trust your local teams uh, to, to kind of do the right thing. Um, I think now we are seeing the limitation of a model where everything is decided in Paris, Milan, and New York, and, you know, kind of pushed to the other markets. I think in China, this is over. You really have to, um, you know, to um, to have uh, teams on the ground and, um, and as I said, trust them, empower them to uh, come up with the, the right strategy. And then if you are a young brand, I mean, imagine this is very costly, so probably uh, difficult or you have to rely on, you know, partners. And yeah, like I think this. it's one of those. It's... Um... So- you see this, there's this phrase, this pot of gold right at the end of the rainbow. Like it looks really appealing, but I think it's actually quite, quite treacherous. Um, or not treacherous, but just, yeah. just a lot of risk, right? Associated with it. Um, yeah, I've, I've always, go ahead. And, go ahead. and yeah, for, for established brands, you know, they will have to uh, kind of bend, I guess, to the, the Chinese government's you yeah. know, desiderata because uh, want to be they have all powers. I mean, we, we see that with what they do now today with Alibaba. They want to dismantle Alipay. Crazy. This morning, you know, it's uh, so it's okay. You you want to come and take advantage of a huge market? Okay, fair enough. But then you have to play with our rules. You have to uh, you know comply with uh, our rules. So. Um, and we start seeing that, like, you know, Nike, Adidas, they have been very quiet. They have kind mm-hmm. of laid low, you yeah. know, on some issues. And, uh, so, you know, your economic interests are at stake. So um, <laughs> It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> it's a- um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder kind of long term. The thing I've always questioned about the concept of kind of Chinese dominance or whatever, however we want to phrase it is um, it's such a closed economy, closed culture, closed ecosystem that it's it just hard to imagine that spreading broadly, right? Without being like, it's like part of the reason that I think um, the U.S. has become or has historically been one of the dominant um, cultural icons is that you know there's a lot of people from a lot of different cultures that live here right and that 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 translates back right that spreads that message spreads that um, identity spreads um versus you know there's not a lot of people that uh of different cultures living in china this is not right on a percentage base it's much smaller and so uh but we don't we don't have to get into that for today um, okay, so let's get to one fun end of show question. Um, so I see you have a, a logo on your shirt, and I'm curious uh, if there were, say, three brands that are connected to your identity or that you uh, connect with, I should say, what would be the three brands? Um, and this can be by spend or ethos or whatever you want to whatever you want. Um, I think spend is the most interesting. Just what are you spending the most on if there were, a, you know, a few brands, but uh, yeah, what I'd love to hear that answer for you. <laughs> okay. So, um, oh, that's, uh, well, that, that's a very interesting question. So, you know, I, I, yeah. I study luxury brands, but um, I consider myself as a, you know, a core luxury uh, consumer. Um, so, um, I um, there are brands that I love and that I you know prefer, so I can, I, I can talk about that. So obviously, being French, you know, I am influenced by uh, uh, by the fr- French brand. I'm somebody that is more kind of um, probably uh, discreet and and yeah, I like my anonymity, my privacy. So I like those yeah, invisible yeah. brands, you know, like. You know, I love Hermes, for for instance, um, very classical. I mean, stay there forever. You know, not too ostentatious. Um, I think they they literally don't have. We've met with them. They don't have a marketing department. There's no marketing. There's no promotion. They have a clienteling team, which kind of operates in that way. But yeah, it's a it's a very interesting setup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, I um, 
you know, I love food, so I I, I spend a lot of money on um, what probably people would you know call luxury food. You know, so yeah, the best chocolates from you know. <laughs> what is the best chocolate? I now I have to buy it. You've said it. <laughs> so what is it? What's it? I name? discovered this. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, this uh, small chocolatine. Uh, I mean, through uh, friends of mine this summer uh, in Lyon, and um, and I forgot uh, I forgot the name, but uh, I I need to um, to 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 go back on, on that. But yeah, I love uh, Marcolini in Belgium. I think this is uh, this is amazing here in the US. You know, I I am stuck with Valrona, which is already you know a very good choice because the the, the quality uh, is really there like yeah and very interesting model you know family business then they they develop through um retail um yeah a travel retail you know and uh and also um um b2b uh, business so they are kind of supplier of the you know the best restaurant or the, those type of things so but i love tea you know i i uh, so i buy you know luxury tea for fauchon ediar or you know um, mariage frère you know so uh, i mean it's very yeah, i mean i spent a, <laughs> a lot of money there and my husband loves like wine so you know he buys a lot of wine um but yeah, I probably um I buy a lot of books actually, you know. This is probably ah. the most I'm not a fashion person, so I don't you know, I prefer to buy uh, actually um fewer items but you know, high quality, durable, something classical that I will wear uh, you know, a lot of time. Um but yeah, I love food. I used to travel a lot, so that would be probably where I spend um in terms of spent, as you said, you know, a yeah, 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 yeah. So if you add up, you know, the, the, the travel and the hotel and things like this. So I love uh, Amman Resort. It's a, yeah, yeah. a luxury brand, luxury hotel brand that I love. Um, um, Ritz Carlton, I like. Uh, Four Seasons as well. Those would be my favorite, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm so happy with how that question turned out. Um, well, hopefully we can uh, break bread soon and I can drink some of your husband's good wine and eat your good chocolate. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> uh, welcome to, uh, to visit anytime. I mean, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to see you. So whenever you are in Boston, please come and visit us. I will. I will. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody else did too. And, uh, yeah, and I will see you soon. Thank you very much for your invitation, Connor. Thank you. Of course. Bye, Sandrine. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.